You? There we go. Okay. Good morning. You can open in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be covering verse 14 today, but we'll read from verse 1 to 13 uh, to get a sense of the glory of what's going on here. So this is God's word. Hear it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word, this truth is not fully comprehensible. It is beyond our complete grasp that you became flesh. And so, Lord, I just want to ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, show us your glory by revealing all of who Christ is to us, that he came into the world, that God became man, that he suffered, he died, he rose from the dead, he is ascended today at your right hand, Father. God, these truths are immense and beautiful and wonderful, and I ask for your help that we could see how the truths of who you are feed our souls. And we all come to you right now in need. We are dependent We are creatures, and we need you. So, Lord, please feed us on your word. Thank you, Christ, that you became flesh. Show us the glory of what it means. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
Amen. There are a few movies, and I think we all have them, but there's a few movies that I will always watch if it's on TV. And among them, maybe chiefly, is the 2008 film Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, It tells a story of Jamal Malik, who grows up in the slums of Mumbai, who somehow becomes a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And because of his life experience, which is insane, he knows the answer to every single question. And they think he's cheating, but it's really just the crazy circumstances of his life by which he's able to answer all the questions. And Jamal has a childhood friend that he meets named Latika, and he loves her. Latika's beautiful, and he loves her, but time and again, they get separated. And we think in a country of a billion people, they're never going to be reunited. Jamal, over the course of years, works so many odd jobs. Eventually, he becomes a chai wallet. He brings chai to people working in a studio, and he's able to get on the TV show. Uh, He works all these things. And Latika, at one point, she's forced into a life of prostitution in a corrupt and difficult place. But somehow, against all odds, they find each other by the end of the movie, and they meet in a train station, and Latika looks at Jamal at the end and says in amazement and astonishment, you came back for me. And Jamal says, of course. She replies, I thought you'd forgotten. And Jamal says, I never forget. Not for one moment. I knew I'd find you in the end. It's our destiny. And Jamal first kisses her on a scar that she has on her face that she obtained during her life of prostitution rather on the, than on her lips. It's a story of all of the history of one man's life leading up to him recovering lost love. He never forgot her. All of destiny led him to her. And today, in John 1.14, we see the author of all destiny and history come back for a people he's never forgotten to kiss them on the scars wrought by their own sin, by himself becoming scarred. We see in this text that God came for us by becoming one of us. And as we look to the one who became flesh, we see God himself in all his glory. And the text lays itself out for us, and we're going to look at it under three headings. First, God came for us. Secondly, he dwelt among us. And lastly, we're going to see that we have seen his glory. God came for us. John opens verse 14 with the words, And the word became flesh. 
Now, preachers are often given to hyperbole and literally the most exaggerated phrases of all time, but it is not hyperbole to say this is the most sublime passage in all of Scripture. Here is the central miracle in Christianity, that God became man. As we approach these five words, and the word became flesh, we must gratefully acknowledge the mystery here. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. One great theologian says of the incarnation this, it is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time, immensity in space, infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming, the all as it were in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. But mystery and self-contradiction are not synonymous. Mystery does not mean that it is self-contradictory. And since the incarnation is the central miracle asserted in Christianity, it's here that we learn how to trust all of who Jesus Christ is. And so we see at least three essential truths in the incarnation, in the words, the word became flesh. The first is this, and we've been covering this over the last week, so we won't camp out here long, but Jesus is truly God. He is truly divine. The word has been there forever with God and was God. Secondly, Jesus is truly human. This is the claim. Jesus of Nazareth, the man who walked around on this earth 2,000 years ago, was God in the flesh. God became a man. Now, in using that word flesh, we can get a little confused because the Bible can use the word flesh in different ways. And so if we want to understand the meaning of the word, we look at the context. In different places in the Bible, uh, flesh will mean sinful nature, our corrupted human flesh that we have because of Adam and Eve's first sin. Now, are we to think that Jesus has a corrupted, sinful flesh, or is the more natural meaning that flesh here means flesh and blood, humanity? Well, clearly, it's the latter, because Jesus is a true picture as he walks the earth of what true humanity was always meant to be. Jesus actually shows us what it truly looks like to be human. 
Jesus came in flesh and blood with, without a sin nature, though he was tempted. And yet we know he was without sin, as it says in Hebrews. So we see Jesus is truly God and truly man at the very same time. He didn't switch on and off the natures. It is a mystery, but the church has always confessed Jesus is truly God and truly man at the same time. Now, in understanding how the word became flesh, there's one particular misunderstanding that we need to steer clear of. And that is when Jesus came to earth, he ceased to be God. We've already said he was truly God and truly man at the same time. But from Philippians 2, we can get confused because Philippians 2 speaks of Jesus emptying himself. But notice how he emptied himself in the passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and dying on a cross. It was humbling himself. It was emptying himself actually by addition rather than subtraction. It was him taking on flesh and blood, rather than him losing his divinity. He came to serve us. And we also know from Colossians 1 that in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fully God, fully man. The third thing we see within the incarnation is that Jesus Christ is forever now the God-man. Where is Jesus today? Well, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And mysteriously, we can also say with Scripture that he is present with us by his Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.9 tells us, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Present tense, ongoing right now. There is, this means, forever a link between humanity and God. He is our perfect plea before the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. He, he, is the, he is our perfect plea before the Father as the Son of Man and the Son of God. This truth that Jesus is truly God, truly man, and forever truly God and truly man, it also explains why we won't be just free-floating spirits in the age to come. Because we'll have imperishable physical bodies like Jesus. He's the first fruits of the new creation. And so in him, we see a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. Thomas Goodwin a pastor of old in considering the 
the mystery of Christ entering this world as flesh, he said this, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. So sloppy wet, unforeseen, what, whatever, whatever you like. And I, hey, I prefer sloppy wet, but that's, that's just the, whatever you like. That's a song if you're confused. I'm so sorry. Christian culture can be too odd. Um, heaven and earth met in Jesus Christ, and they still meet today. Now, why is this all important, all this doctrine, all this theology? Well, first, we be wise to acknowledge history. It's been said, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. And so, as we look on Christian history, we find that the greatest enemy of the early Christian church was not threats from outside and persecution, but it was false teaching about the identity of Jesus. Some said he wasn't truly God. He didn't truly rise from the dead. That's not, others said he wasn't truly human. He just appeared to be a human. He was just a spirit, but did not have true humanity. And in both cases, if you adopt either one of those, if you deny he's truly God or truly human, you'll end up with a false gospel of a Jesus who couldn't save humanity from their sin and a disunity in the Godhead himself. This is also why, as we sang in that great song, uh, I believe in the virgin birth, that's why this matters, that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was without a sin nature. And still today, all world religions, all cults, all false teachings differ from Orthodox Christianity on this, the two natures of Christ. This is still what gets attacked, truly God, truly human. And so these are of great importance, yes, but also to speak to the heart. It means for us that God didn't abandon us. The word by whom creation was spoken into existence. After creation rebelled against him, he crossed the chasm of space and time, and he entered into creation as creation. And so too, you might have known a thousand relationships where you were abandoned. But the incarnation shows us it's not so with God. It means God came to seek and save the lost. And our God, he's a missionary God. He came into the world. The word became flesh. That that truth, it's the heartbeat we now have as a people who have been saved. That's why we as a church would endeavor to go to the unreached peoples because God came to us. That's why we here are sent people. We have a mission because the word came and became flesh and came among us. 
if you don't know how God feels about you, you doubt the love of God, the word became flesh. God took on humanity, born in a feeding trough, limited by a human body in mysterious ways. See how much God loves human flesh? He would become one of us. He came, and what did he do? He dwelt among us. Allusions in, this, uh, in these verses, verse 14 through 18, abound uh, to the, they look back, they have hints of the Exodus account of God giving the law to Moses and dwelling in a tabernacle with his people and showing Moses the afterglow of his glory and disclosing his name and himself to Moses. That's in the background. There's all kinds of hints around here. And there, the word of God came and it came onto stone tablets. But here, the word of God comes and it's in human flesh. The Bible speaks of the hearts we have apart from Christ. And you know what they are? They're hearts of stone. But he came to give hearts of flesh. And now, instead of dwelling in a tabernacle as he did in the Exodus account, he dwells with us. We see in this that Jesus is the way to the presence of God. The word used for dwell is the same here for pitching a tent or tabernacling. It's the same exact word used. We could say, He tabernacled among his people, among us. And if you remember, the tabernacle was basically a giant tent where God would dwell in the midst of his people, and it was precious. But it wasn't precious because of its external appearance, but because God was there. Similar to the pre-resurrection body of Jesus, where Isaiah tells us, that we wouldn't have found anything attractive in his appearance. But there within that body contained all the fullness of deity. In Jesus, not only did God not abandon us, but he, as Eugene Peterson has famously put it in his paraphrase, he moved into the neighborhood. And it wasn't because it was an advantageous market time. It's not as if God saw, if I, ah, oh man, if I capitalize right now, I think this area is really going to, uh, property prices are just going to skyrocket. Some coffee shops will go in there, and I think this would be a very good investment. He came because of love. And the consistent witness of Scripture is that God doesn't just save his people and then lead and head out. But he saves them. As he saved them out of the land of Egypt, to bring them into fellowship with himself, to give them his very presence. It means for those who just want to run away, those of us in the room who just want to get away from whatever is going on in life, but you feel like you don't even have the energy to do that. It means God came to you. 
and he dwelt with you. It used to be that you went to the tabernacle to meet with God. Then later on in scripture, it's the temple. And today, many religions have holy sites and pilgrimages to holy lands. But in here is the foreshadowing that Jesus was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it and fulfill it in himself. Uh, I grew up going to high school football games uh, at the school I went to, and there was one family friend who was a real character. And during the games, uh, there was a Krispy Kreme's reel near our high school. And he would say to anybody, he was real loud, and he'd say, Hey, you fly by. And what he meant by that is, if you go get the Krispy Kreme donuts, I'll pay for it. You fly, I buy. I thought that was an incredible deal. I thought that was an absolutely astonishing deal. God here doesn't say, you fly, I buy. He says, I come and I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to buy you. And I'm going to bring you to myself. Because Jesus is the tabernacle and temple of God, we no longer have to go to a place to reconcile with God, but we go to a person. And even more astonishing than that, the scriptures tell us we are the temple of God by his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. This means it's not about our religious constructs for God. Like, how silly would it be for the Israelites to be preoccupied thinking, I'm so glad I put up the tent so now God can come to me. I've enabled God to do this for me. From what I've built, I now have access to God. Yet, how often do I find myself, I wonder if you do too, trying to build a tabernacle or altar, so to speak, in the things I do, in my own feelings, have I, have I felt bad enough for long enough, truly enough? Or can I create the right kind of atmosphere so I can, I can bring God's presence to myself so God can meet with me? The word became flesh and dwelt among us because we needed more than a religious program. We needed God himself to come and save us. Not only is he the presence, the way to the presence of God, but he identified with us in the incarnation, in dwelling with us. He ate fish with his disciples. He experienced temptation. He knew the hurt of betrayal. He died in the flesh. Hebrews hits on this over and over, but one thing that it says is he was tempted in every way in which we are, and yet he was without sin. And so it means wherever you are at in life, he knows. And it probably would have been enough for God in his omniscience to just know, but he chose to come in human flesh and identify with us in that way. God has forever identified with his people. Thirdly, he dwelt among us. That means that we center around him. 
The tabernacle was at the center of the encampment of the people. You center everything around this tabernacle. And Pastor James Montgomery Boyce said, this is highly significant in reference to Jesus Christ. For he is the center of the Christian encampment. He's our gathering place. And so like, if you look around, what do we have in common in this room? It's that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. That he found me in my darkness and sin and he cleansed me. And if you're a Christian, that's your story too. This is why we sing songs that glorify Jesus. Why our teaching will always center on Christ and him crucified. It's the reason that we are brothers and sisters, not because of our political affiliations, not because of our hobbies, not because of our ethnic background, but the fact that we have been bought with his blood. We center on Christ. And ultimately, the word came and dwelt with us so that one day we might dwell with God. And when we see how he did this, when we see what it took, we find ourselves staring, as it were, into the blazing sun of the glory of God. John says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word glory here, doxa, you know, the doxology is a song we sing, wrapped up with glory and majesty and praise. It's a difficult word to wrap our minds around. It comes up over and over again in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a couple words that are used for it. You've probably heard them before. One is kavod, which has the idea of like weightiness, of heaviness. When we pray that God's presence would be thick, almost as it were, we were just falling under it because it was so weighty. Another word used is Shekinah, where the glory cloud is referred to the Shekinah glory cloud. It's a difficult thing to fully wrap our minds around, but the, the dictionary of biblical imagery, it says glory includes splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, and rapture. In the Bible, it is primarily a quality ascribed to God in places of his presence, including places of worship in heaven. And to encounter the glory of God is always awe-inspiring and sacred. Like when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. The scriptures tell us, now the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of of the people of Israel. There's a few statements in scripture uh, that fill out the phrase, God is. God is spirit. God is love. Do you know what another one of them is? God is a consuming fire. And you know the feeling of even being at a small bonfire 
and just looking in and being mesmerized by it, but not being able to get too close to it. It's not a bad comparison, God's glory, to staring into the blazing star known as our sun. It's awesome, and by its light, we see everything. And if we would get too close to it, we would die. And if we stared directly into it, we'd go blind. God's glory is awesome and weighty. It's where the old archaic use of some of our English words, they they make true sense. Like the word awful. Not in a bad way, but full of awe or terrific, which doesn't come just with a thumbs up, but has a meaning of inspiring terror. And not just raw, bad fear, but the kind of awe you get as you see a tsunami wave forming and about to crash standing at the precipice of a 10,000-foot cliff drop. God's glory is awesome. It's a consuming fire. But John says, we've seen it. In the sun, we've seen the glory of the one and only. The phrase in the ESV, if we can get these two up here. Uh, so we're maybe familiar with the King James. Uh, it's made its way into our language and we've heard it a lot. Uh, the phrase, as of the only son from the Father, it's been rendered in the King James, the only begotten. And we're really familiar with that. And that's not a wrong translation, but sometimes it can bring the idea that Jesus was created, which we know isn't true. Uh, but the real sense that this has is what's in view here is that Jesus is the unique and only son. That he is, as Hebrews 1, 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. The same word used for only son is used in Hebrews 11 where it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Now we know Abraham had another son, Ishmael, but it meant that Isaac was unique. He was the only one through whom the promise could come. He was the treasure of Abraham. The glory of Jesus, it's that blazing sun of glory that none of us could stare directly into without dying. But in Jesus, we're able to stare into the blazing sun of God's glory and not have our retinas burned. How? Because this glory of God, the text says, is full of grace 
and truth. The next verses, 15 through 18, they're going to explain all of what that phrase means. And we'll tabernacle ourselves there next week. But suffice it to say this, in Jesus, we see God in all his glory. And we find his glory is overflowing with grace and truth. Grace, undeserved favor, steadfast love, truth, unfailing, none, not one of his words falling to the ground, faithfulness to the uttermost. The God who revealed himself to be full of steadfast love and faithfulness is seen here in Jesus. In verse 18, it gives us the unbelievable language for how this can happen, how we can see God and live. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. And we think to ourselves, well, didn't this person in the Old Testament see God? Didn't this person? As every time you look at that, there's kind of a qualifier. It's like, well, God had just passed by then. Or Isaiah in the temple, when he was just overwhelmed and the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And he saw the train, the hem of his robe. That's all he saw. No one's actually seen God face to face. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. As we see Jesus, we see God. The text says he's made him known. That means is he's explained him. He's exegeted God. What we endeavored to do in opening up the Bible and studying is take a scripture and exegete it, pull out what is actually there and give it so it would feed our souls and we would worship God. Jesus came and in looking at him, he pulled out, this is who God truly is. Look at it in human flesh, living 30 years here on the earth. This is, as Don Carson says, Jesus, he's the narration of God. He stories who God is. We wonder to ourselves, yeah, I know, but what's God really like? Look at Jesus, and you see what God is really like. So to put this all together and see the glory of God, we see that the glory of God is in this, that he would humble himself and come into his creation. This is the truth. God made us, and it was good. And we have all strayed and gone our own way and rebelled against him. And we, we deserve to be left in our sin mess we've made. We deserve punishment from God. And even if God came for us, we'd reject him and kill him. 
And this is grace. God did come for us. The eternal Son of God became flesh and blood and dwelt among us, and we did kill him. Yet his death was in our place, and if we trust in him, he cleanses us, and he defeated death, and he rose from the dead. In the incarnation of Jesus, we have the miracle that God became human. The immortal God became mortal, and the giver of life gave his life. And he'd come all the way down to earth and die for us as one of us so that he might bring us back up into new life with him. The glory is in the height and the depth and the space in between that he traveled to do it. Augustine, reflecting on this, said this, see how rich he is. All things were made through him. See how poor he is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the glory of God, that he would humble himself in ultimate descent, that he would lay down his life for his enemies. There's no one else like this. And if you've trusted in this God man, the man Jesus Christ, you've been given a heart of flesh. And one day, you'll fully share in his glory too. Do we doubt the love of God? Let us look at the incarnation. God came for us. How how can we not go to the ends of the earth? Have you made something other than God the center of your existence? Come back to Christ. He's the center. Not a call to do some great work for God. It's to it's to come back to the center of all. He came for us. John wrote another book. And he gives us a glimpse in the age to come of what's going to happen because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Jesus, the truth that you became flesh and dwelt among us to ultimately die in our place and rise from the dead and be able to restore our humanity, cleanse us. It assures us of your love for us, God. And we know still Today, in a mysterious way, you are present with your people by your Holy Spirit. And so as we now respond to the word that you spoke, Spirit, I ask that you would be in our midst. I ask that your people would be able to sense your presence with us. We believe the word became flesh and now God we ask that what we know in our heads what we have trusted with our whole lives that you would be so kind to be able to let us experience with our hearts the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of God in Christ Jesus. As we consider Christ that you crossed the cosmos for us that you stepped into creation as creation, that the giver of life gave his life. As we think over those things, as we sing the truths of those things, would we know that you are with us still today and you're coming again for us. We believe this by faith. Lord, for anyone in this room who has not trusted in you, oh, would you give them faith to trust in what Christ has done. As we lift our voices to you, would you be glorified in our midst? In Christ's name, amen. One way Christ is still present with us today is in this meal that he gave us and he said, as often as you meet, take this. Take the bread in remembrance of me that's my body given for you. The cup, it's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's as we take and eat, remember that Christ gave himself for us and that he is our sustenance. He is what we need. We can get through today because Christ has saved us and he is with us and he is coming again. We're proclaiming his death until he comes again. We also have men and women of prayer who are gonna be on the sides to cry out to God for you and with you, to pray the promises of God with you, to walk alongside one another. And every single one of us is flesh and blood in this room. And if God would become flesh and blood, what does that say to us of how we should love one another? How we need more than just FaceTime and texts. We need in-person love. 
getting into one another's lives, walking through it with one another so we can pray for each other too. We'll be singing songs of praise and worship to God. We can take postures of praise here on the carpets. Let's worship and sing to the one who became flesh.